You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 96. the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's guest on the show is Roxanne Beltran, a PhD student at the University of Alaska at Fairbanks and an expert on the Weddell seal, a species found in abundance along Antarctic coasts. In addition to her research, Roxanne is also an educator, and in this interview, you'll hear her talk with EOC producer Sean Bogle about her classroom programs and uh, also her new kids book, um, which is about seal research in the Antarctic. Let's jump in. My name is Roxanne Beltran. Um, I'm a graduate student at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks, and I study seals um, right now down in Antarctica. And how long have you been uh, studying seals? Um, It's been about five years now. Um, So I started in my undergraduate at the University of California, Santa Cruz, um, and then continued on for my master's degree at the University of Alaska Anchorage, and I'm now um, in Fairbanks. So when you say seals, are sea lions included? Um, Actually, I'm out on the Pribilof Islands right now helping out with a study on fur seals, which are um, in the Odoriad family. Um, So I do do a little bit of of fur seal work, um, but usually it's just true seals or phocid seals. Okay, so, but generally, you, your experience is primarily with pinnipeds. Is it right? is, that's correct. Okay, could you, could you describe what, what pinniped is exactly to people? Because some people don't quite understand that it encompasses both seals and sea lions. Absolutely. So, pinnipeds are what we call fin-footed animals, um, the seals, the sea lions, the walruses. Um, and typically, um, you can think of it as uh, seals versus sea lions. So, seals are sort of the fatter, uh, slightly more awkward um, animals that kind of slump along the beach and use mostly their fore flippers. Um, they kind of crawl around and use their front flippers um, just to claw on the ice or the sand or whatever they live on and their back flippers to sort of um, move around in the water. Whereas the sea lions, um, they primarily use their front flippers when they're swimming in the water. So um, they're really fast, really um, uh, highly technical underwater. So they do lots of spins and flips and they're really quick in the water. They tend to be a little bit smaller as well. So how long have you um, been interested in working with, I mean, is it, are, is it pinnipeds or seals and sea lions uh, uh, solely, or are there other marine species, or do you, did you have interest or still have interest in other um, maybe terrestrial creatures? Yeah, you know, I first started as a plant scientist um, and kind of transitioned into the marine environment when I was in college, and I really fell in love with pinnipeds. Um, I haven't done much work with cetaceans. I would love to. I'd love to work with birds as well, but... Um, right now, phocid seals are kind of of primary interest to me. So, and of course, it also involved in that is just the choices that have been put before you. Because we the the scientific industry, it's not exactly you can't always carve your own path. You Absolutely. have to go where those opportunities are. So, I mean, is that has that been a struggle? For you, or has it just kind of been running the motion of like, that's just the way the river's flowing? You know, I've gone with the flow. When I got out of college, I applied to a bunch of different positions. I applied to a turtle project on the British Virgin Islands. I applied to a plant project and I applied to a seal project. And the seal project was the one that I was accepted to and that got my interest the most. And so that's where that path took me because that's where the funding was. And 
I think that's that's pretty frequent in science for that to happen, for you to sort of follow where the funding is. Um, but so far it's taken me to some amazing places, so I'm really lucky. That's great. That's yeah. it's, it's always nice to hear that uh, despite uh, the unknown, that you still can keep that positive outlook. Absolutely. Um, and, and use, you know, what, what exactly is in front of you. Right. Um, so if you could also tell our viewers, and I'm personally interested mm -hmm. as well, um, you know, what... What struck your fancy with um, the marine world? You know, what's what is so special about it? Do you have a personal encounter or a story that you know that somehow didn't realize it was actually going to carve your life? Yeah, you know, I, I grew up in San Diego, California. Um, I was a complete beach baby. I you know every day after school, as soon as soccer practice was over, I would I would mm -hmm. go to the beach. I would stick my toes in the sand. I would go in the water. I would get tumbled by the waves and. It always amazed me seeing the seals and sea lions there and just watching them seamlessly flow through the water. Um, but I didn't really realize that that would be my path. So in college, I sort of became a scuba diver. That was interesting to me. I did scientific scuba for a while and cool. and then found seals. And the thing that struck me about seals and sea lions was, like I said, how incredible they were both in the water and on land. And I think kind of that interest in my childhood of being in and around the water sort of... Um, took me on the path to study animals who are much better at it than I am. <laughs> so are you, are you the first uh, in your family uh, to be, uh, you know, well, I mean, I don't know, are there people in your family that do appreciate wildlife and influence you in some way, whether it was a parent or uh, some sort of other mentor? Yeah, you know, my grandma was a big, was a big part of that. So really? she, she took me to SeaWorld when I was a kid, um, to the sea lion and sea otter show. And we went every Thursday and it was always a highlight and that was amazing to me. Um, and that's kind of, I think, where it started was me going there and realizing that it was possible to go down that career path. So, yeah. you know, and this isn't really even one of the questions that I want to ask, but since you actually brought that up, that is a very <laughs> odd way considering the current status of SeaWorld, that, that would be something that would inspire you. And obviously they've had a lot of bad PR Absolutely. Um, from the, the activities that they're running there. And of yeah. course, you know, several of the films that have directly targeted that. So how odd does that, you know, that you, an organization like that inspired you to pursue something like this. And so now here we are 2016 mm -hmm. and you have achieved a lot of these wonderful goals in your career. Mm -hmm. How do you see an organization like that now? Like, how do you see SeaWorld? Although it was like, you know, essentially that was your start. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, I thought a lot about this because in my field, I know quite a few people who directly work with the animals at SeaWorld. So a lot of researchers um, who primarily do field science, but who need to, to utilize captive animals in order to sort of... Um, get into the nitty gritty of their study system. So there are a lot of things that you just can't study in wild animals that you can study in captive animals. Um, and so to me, I sort of understand the importance of research on captive animals. Um, and I actually in college worked for a captive seal and sea lion facility for about three years as an animal trainer. Um, and that also sort of solidified my appreciation for animals in captivity. I don't necessarily think that all animals in captivity are a good thing. You know, some programs um, get their animals in ways that I don't necessarily agree with. But just like anything in science, you know, we, we are always, always, always um, trying to find the balance between um, the, the morals and the importance of the science that we're doing and what that science is doing in terms of conservation. And so we weigh those benefits of those different things. And to me, you know, SeaWorld was really important in facilitating my interest in this career. Um, and so, you know, I think it's really important to have those sorts of programs. Let's 
that's a really interesting um, realization, you know, coming from where, you know, this inspiration we talked about. And I'm sure there, I'm sure SeaWorld inspired a lot of people to get, and including the people that currently work or have worked with uh, SeaWorld in the past. And, and, and SeaWorld is just one of many aquariums that, that um, uh, are kind of operated in the same fashion that, of course, at this point in time, people are, are trying to shut those, those institutions down or at least right. have them change their methods sure. um, uh, differently. Um, okay. Well, what are you doing right now? Like, ex ex explain to us, um, you're, you're a student mm -hmm. and you've been, it almost sounds like you've been uh, a student for quite some time. Yep. And was, you know, was that intentional? Like, what stage of your education are you at currently? Yeah, so I am just starting year two of my PhD. Um, I've known for a while that I wanted to become a professor, and the standard right now is that if you want to become a professor, you need to have a PhD. So that's sort of been the trajectory um, ever since I was in high school that I really wanted to follow. Um, so I did my master's degree um, on Waddell Seals down in Antarctica, um, finished that in 2015, and I'm now continuing on that same project, but going for my PhD. Um, so I'll hopefully have two more years of that. Um, so what, what university? Uh, university of Alaska Fairbanks. Okay. Smack dab in the middle of Alaska. Okay. And what, <laughs> what kind of program do they run there? I know that there's a lot of different prestigious schools out there. How do they fare in the gamut of, uh, you know, biology schools? Yeah, they're, they're pretty world-renowned for, um, especially for uh, fisheries and ocean sciences. Um, but they also have a really good wildlife and biology program, and that's what I'm a part of. Um, so a lot of it is Arctic research, looking at things like caribou and muskox and uh, moose and things that you'll typically find in Alaska. Um, but they also do a lot of work with animals that are really far away. The extreme example is, of course, Antarctica, where we travel all the way from <laughs> whatever Alaska is. I think it's somewhere around 60 degrees north all the way to 77 degrees south for our research. It sounds like a very exhausting trip. We get a lot of airline miles. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, I have, I have many peers that... Um, work with uh, Garrett's program uh, uh, with Waddell's and uh, I mean or anybody even include the Dealey Penguin Project, Grant Ballard and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. And they they all tell me that it is, you know, it's exciting when you get there, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't come with a small little price. It's a couple of days of travel. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. It's August now and we're starting to get our field gear together to get it shipped um, in the next couple of weeks. And well, that's, that's, I'm glad you actually brought that up though. So what is, okay, okay let's, I guess let's back up before we get ahead of ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, so you worked on with your master's um, with what else, and you are extending that education um, into your PhD. That's exactly So right. let's back up and talk about what it was you were looking at in your master's mm -hmm. and what exactly are you hoping to achieve in your PhD? Sure. Um, start from the basics. So my master's project was looking at the impacts of environmental change on Waddell seals. Um, there's a lot of unknowns right now about how exactly climate change is impacting Antarctica and um, if it is impacting it now or if it impacts it in the future, how things like top predators will respond because of course top predators have a great influence on all of the trophic levels below them. Um, so I took a simulation modeling approach where I basically created sort of like a Tamagotchi if you remember those from when you were a kid. I basically created a fake seal in a computer program. Um, and I can tweak the model inputs in order to figure out um, how they live their lives. So it's, it's a physiology and ecology model that has all the different components of the body in it. It has things like metabolism and um, the requirements for growth. Um, the, the simulated animal can lactate and it can molt its fur and it can go swimming. 
So it makes all these different decisions and those decisions are influenced by its body condition um, and the time of the year and things like that. So basically I simulate animals for one full calendar year. At the start of the year, I set up their parameters. I give them a starting body mass and things like that. And then at the end of the year, I can measure those same parameters, but I can tweak the environmental um, conditions. So I can say, you know, what is the ending mass of a seal that lives in an environment with 10% less fish? Um, what if the seal has to work two times as hard to get that same amount of fish? What if its pup needs to be two times as fat to survive? Um, and we can start to test different hypotheses about how environmental change might impact those seals. So it, what, it, your, your findings in, on that particular study, whenever you were looking at these factors uh, for your masters, mm -hmm. um, was there anything um, jaw dropping or, or, or not known yet? And I'm also curious, are you working for, from a data set that's from scratch or are you building off of uh, additional information from previous re researchers? So to address the second question, um, I'm mostly using data that already exists. Um, what else are some of the best studied uh, marine mammals because they're so accessible, excuse me, and the logistics of the Antarctic program are so great um, that Garrett's group has been going down for so long. Lots of physiologists have been going down for a long time. And so their behavior and physiology and ecology and feeding ecology are extremely well known. Um, it's just a matter of taking all of those pieces of the puzzle and then piecing them together into one story. So part of my job was going through all the literature and finding everything that was pertinent and sort of piecing those puzzles together. Um, but that being said, there are a lot of things that aren't known, and that's sort of what um, my PhD is aiming to address. So for instance, um, there's a lot that's not known about the different life history events of seals. So for instance, um, what exactly controls the start of the molt and how the timing of molt um, is linked to timing in reproduction. And, it, and what is molting? Yeah, so molting is basically replacement of the fur coat. Um, so this happens, you know, if you have a cat or a dog, they shed their hair all the time, it seems like. They have sort of an annual shedding type molt. Um, seals tend to do that in a really short period of time. So in some animals, it can happen in a couple weeks. Some animals, it can happen in a couple months. Um, but they replace the entire fur on their surface area, and that helps them um, we think sort of take care of their skin um, be able to stay warm um, and sort of protect their skin from other sorts of cuts and bruises and things like that. Um, so during that time, it's, it's pretty energetically expensive because they have to actually warm the skin up to about 17 degrees Celsius. So for animals like wood owl seals, they're losing a lot of heat when they're doing that. Mm -hmm. um, so they warm their skin, they're usually hauled out on the ice and then they shed all their fur. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's sort of one of their, what we call critical life history events. The other one, of course, is reproduction. Um, and researchers tend to focus on reproduction because reproductive parameters are generally the parameters that drive population growth. Um, but we're finding more and more that the molt is very important, both in terms of energy expenditure and in terms of um, predicting reproductive sex success in the following year. So we're sort of interested in how those two things are linked. Okay, and so as for right now, as you're in your PhD, is, mm -hmm. this, is this simply like what, what kind of questions are you going to be asking that maybe you haven't gotten to? Like, is there a bigger picture? And I'm sure this research is going to continue, whether it be you or somebody following her. And I'm also curious, and I'm sorry that I'm barraging you with so many questions, <laughs> um, but that's how quickly they come into my mind. Um, the, the collaborative effort. Sure. Exactly. Like, who, who else are you working with? Like, you had mentioned 
um, Garrett uh, mm -hmm. and exactly you know what his research is doing and what is his ultimate goal and how does this all tie together? Sure. I'm going to have to start getting a list of these questions. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, let me start with the first one. So the first question was about the different components of the research project. Um, so I'll give you sort of the, uh, the sneak preview. I'll, I'll ruin the story by telling you about what we're finding. Oh, please do. We are finding that mole and reproduction are so closely linked that you can actually predict whether or not an animal will have a pup the next year based on its molt timing the previous year. So we find basically that animals um, that skip reproducing in a given year, um, which is about one third of the, of the Woodall seals, they have this very weird life history characteristic where they skip pupping about one in every three years. So if they skip pupping, they tend to molt a lot earlier, about a month earlier than the seals that reproduced. Um, and those animals, when they skip breeding and they molt earlier, they're much more likely to have a pup in year two. Whereas if animals um, pup really late in the pupping season, and so they lactate late, then they end up molting later. And when they molt later, they tend to have much lower reproductive success in the next year. So there's some really clear links both in timing and in reproductive success between reproduction and the molt. Um, and so those are most of the questions that we're addressing. So there's a short foraging period that happens between lactation and molt um, that I'm studying. So I'm looking at behavior in terms of diving differences. Um, I'm looking at differences in feeding ecology between animals that pup and don't pup. So trying to tease out those links of exactly what might be regulating that molt timing. Um, both from an ecology perspective and from a physiology perspective, and then trying to tie that into the big picture where, you know, we can start to understand if, for example, climate change is influencing the timing of reproduction in all the seals, how that may influence the timing of the molt and how that therefore may influence future reproductive success. Um, so those are sort of the main questions that we're trying to address. The second question you asked was about um, Dr. Uh, Jay Rotella and Bob Garrett's project at Montana State University. So they have a group called B009 that's been going down to McMurdo um, for something like 40 years. Um, and they're more of a population demographics project. So they're really interested in seeing how the Waddell Seal population is doing in describing the different age classes and sex classes that make up the population um, and looking at things like short-term uh, perturbations like extreme ice events that may influence the population. Um, so we've worked with them to figure out which seals we should study because they know the birth date, the age, the sex, um, and the reproductive history for about 80% of the seals in this population. So they can tell us which ones have been seen consistently and which ones we should focus our time and attention on. Well, that's cool. So they built a really wonderful foundation for everyone else to kind of extend their research beyond that. And while they're going to, of course, maintain their efforts, uh, but that's, I mean, that's, that's a really wonderful window into it's amazing. a species life like that. Yeah. To say that our project wouldn't be possible without them is an, a huge understatement. And we would not, you know, we're trying to recapture our females three months apart or two months apart um, in one of the most remote places in the world. And they make it possible because we know exactly where our seals are. We know exactly what their um, reproductive timing is because those guys are going out on snow machines every day and looking for pups. So um, that has been hugely fundamental to our project, yeah. So who else is looking at Whittell Research? Is it, are there other groups that you're working with besides them on other parts of the world or whatever? Or, or you know, when you go down to uh, Murdo, I mm -hmm. would think that some of those people overlap or some of them say, hey, you know, we're not down there this time of year. Could you look out for this for us? Exactly, yeah, there's a lot of back and forth that happens. So um, B009, that, that Montana State group, goes down every year. 
Um, this is the fourth year of our project and it's our final year. Um, and in the time that we've been down there, there have been two other groups that have gone down. Um, so one is headed up by Terry Williams and Randy Davis, um, and they're looking into the navigational capabilities of Waddell seals. So they've been putting out these really fancy instruments um, and doing isolated hole experiments. So basically taking seals to places where there's only one breathing hole um, so that they can see exactly how those seals return to that same breathing hole using their navigation capabilities. Um, the other project that's down there um, is kind of a cell, um, cell bio group. So they're looking to start a muscle cell line for Waddell seals. They've been doing a lot of biopsies and necropsies and things like that. What is the status of Waddell's at this point? Like what sort of population are we looking at? And are, and are there any obvious impacts that global warming is having on them um, in that region? And, and I don't know if maybe looking at other species, are there indicators that can lead up to uh, finding out the sort of information towards Waddell's, or vice versa, the Waddell's are indicators for some of the other species that might be on the cusp of radical change? Sure, that's a good question. Um, so the Waddell cells that we're studying are very stable. Their population is healthy and happy. It's about 2,000 individuals. Good, good. Um, we're really happy with that. Um, and that's part of the reason that we are studying that population is because they're really representative of a baseline seal. So we can start to understand seal physiology and behavior and those links between reproduction and molt um, in a way where there are very few external influences on those things. So we can get a really clear understanding of them. And then we can apply those things to seals that are more difficult to study. Um, so immediately I think to Arctic seals because they're sort of the quintessential um, species that are very difficult to study. They live in very remote places often on ice flows that are in the middle of nowhere that are really hard to get to. Um, so the numbers of tags, like satellite tags that have been put on those animals, you know, you could count on two hands for some of these species. Um, whereas, you know, wood seals have been so well studied for over 40 years. So, um, you know, seals are very different across species, but there are a lot of inferences that we can make with one species and take to another species. And so that's sort of how we're treating this is if we can better understand how Waddell seal life histories work, then we can better understand how Arctic seal life histories work. Hmm. Hmm. Um, who's funding all this research? It's a National Science Foundation. Um, so my advisor, Jen Burns, and, um, and also Ward Tess at the University of Alaska Anchorage and the Marine Mammal Lab in Seattle. Um, got an NSF grant that was four years. Um, and so that's been funding. That's funded two graduate students, um, actually three graduate students now, a postdoc in all the field research. Oh, so wow. that was huge. It was, I think, $1.2 million. So it was a hefty grant. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. I, I know that yeah. people are constantly scrapping for money just oh to make ends meet. It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. The logistics support down there is incredible. And, you know, there's a lot of it that that doesn't even go through the grant process, like the housing and the food um, and the helicopter time that's supplied by the Antarctic program that is so incredibly helpful for our research. So we're very lucky. Well, it's, it's definitely a really competitive place uh, to go down there. I, I myself have tried several times and even, even thought of joining that logistical team down there, what, even being a cook, I've met, I've met the cooks <laughs> that come up and I just, I can't quite seem to get myself to do that because it doesn't sound that, I mean, it's, I'm not sure that I, I want to see a place, but I don't know if I want to you know, be washing dishes at the same time. Yeah. I'm sorry, but that's... Yeah. No, there are about 800 people at max capacity down there during the summer. Um, so we meet so many interesting people. We have, you know, people in the kitchen who are doctors and lawyers. And then we have, you know, people who are sorting trash that, you know, were um, high up politicians that just decided they needed 
a year off and they were going to go down to Antarctica. So it's kind of an interesting mix of people, but yeah, definitely draws an interesting crowd. So you said that you want to be a professor. I do. And you like teaching. I love it. You love teaching. And why is that? Where, where did that uh, spawn from exactly? Have you, have you been involved in uh, educational programs prior? Or are you currently involved in education in addition to your research? Yeah, you know, I had a lot of mentors when I was kind of going through the scientific learning process that really paved the way for my learning and my success, um, particularly Dr. Jay Vravra in high school. He was my high school biotechnology <laughs> teacher. And uh, I think we were in 10th grade. He dragged us down to the intertidal, had us catch crabs, and then had us DNA barcode sequence their, um, their, uh, their meat. And it was incredible just, you know, taking us from the classroom to the field to the lab you know, back to the classroom with those data was just, it was completely life-changing. So um, I've had a couple of people like that who've just been incredibly inspiring and have made me realize that as an educator, I can have just as much or maybe even more of an impact on people's lives than I can as a scientist. Um, and I have tried to take that to heart as much as I possibly can throughout my, throughout my graduate career. Well, we understand it at Wildlands. We know that uh, a lot of that information that's collected in Put in the scientific journals and and whatnot, um, especially when they're trying to come up with uh, conservation management plans. Specifically, though, you had told me previously <laughs> that you go around and do outreach programs, and specifically with this Waddell stuffed animal called <laughs> patches. patches. Yeah, yeah. tell us tell us more about exactly what how that idea came about? So my advisor, Jen Burns, had a previous Woodall Soil Research Project, um, and she was working with an educator, um, Alex Eilers, uh, who was with Polar Trek at the time, uh, Polar Teachers and Researchers and Educators Collaborating. Oh. I forget what it stands for, Polar Trek. It's an amazing program. Um, basically, they send teachers down to research places um, in order for them to kind of figure out what the researchers are doing, take that information, and then take it to the classrooms. Um, and so they've done a lot of really good um, work down in Antarctica and Alex came back and was doing classroom visits in Tennessee. Um, I thought that was a great idea. So I sort of took that idea and ran with it. And I started an outreach program um, with a fellow graduate student of mine named Amy Kirkham um, in Alaska. So we decided we wanted to visit Anchorage classrooms and talk to the students about, um, about our research. There's a lot of course in common between Antarctica and Alaska. Um, in terms of the cold and sort of the remoteness. And so we thought that our research as well as the environment of Antarctica would be really tangible to the students. Um, so we thought about different ways we could do it. We thought, you know, maybe a PowerPoint presentation would be good. We could go talk to them. We might bring them one of our big red coats that we wear in the field and they can try it on and pretend like they're Antarctic researchers, you know, but there was something missing. And, um, and then one day it came to me, I said, why don't we just make a life-size stuffed seal to take. Um, and I thought it was a little bit crazy, but we ended up sewing this, you know, I think it's seven and a half feet long. It's a really long, really big stuffed seal. Um, and I said, you know, we'll take this to the classroom and we'll have the students measure it. So part of what we do in the field is we take morphometric measurements of our seals. We take length measurements and girth measurements um, in order to estimate body composition and volume. And so we wanted to have the students take those same measurements on the stuffed seal so that they could, you know, have a math lesson to calculate volume. And then they could have the biology lesson where they learn how important surface area is to thermoregulation. And so we kind of built all these components up and built the seal and brought it around. And, 
you know, we started with a couple classrooms and pretty soon we were going both to the Anchorage School District and the Fairbanks School District. And we visited over 4,000 students. So wow. um, we're really excited about that. Yeah. So, so obviously teachers in these schools were really uh, receptive to this sort of thing. I mean, is that difficult? You just have to pick up the phone and you say, hey, this is what we have. We're wondering if you're interested or do you know that they already have programs? And are you, are you talking to um, biology teachers mm-hmm, or yeah. just general education for younger age groups? It really depends. So we, I started with the intention of doing middle school and high school students because I wanted to be able to kind of bring the physiology and, and uh, all the biology to the classrooms. So we went to an in-service. They, the school districts have these in-service meetings where all the teachers come and they, um, different groups can come talk to them about, um, about different programs that they're offering. And so um, I, I went to one of those and, and talked to the teachers about the program that we were creating and the ideas that we had to bring the SEAL to the classroom. And we had a sign-up list and we got 10 teachers to sign up and we emailed them and we made dates with them to come to the classrooms. And from there, it was more of a word of mouth thing. So we had a couple um, newspaper articles that were written and kind of that sparked interest throughout the community. So we had teachers emailing us to try to get us into their classrooms. and. Um, word of mouth has been huge. We've gotten to a point where we actually can't do all the school visits that um, teachers want us to do because we just we don't have enough time. Um, but we have a third graduate student now, Skyla Walcott, who's working with us um, to also get this out um, into the classroom. So, yeah. So obviously the teachers like you. So what sort of responses are you getting from the kids? I mean, I, I mean obviously you're you're giving them a whole new experience and like in the gear you're making the gears turn. Like what? How are those? How are they reacting? It's been incredible. It's been an incredible experience for me, a, a great learning experience. Um, starting out, you know, I was Googling things like, you know, what sort of science does a third grader know how to do? You know, trying to figure out how I can make these things applicable. Because right. um, like I said, you know, in, original intentions were middle and high school, but we ended up doing K through 12 um, and even some college students. So it's definitely been a really cool learning experience seeing the different grade levels. And we get something different out of every single class that we do and also every level that we do. So, you know, a lot of the kindergartners, you know, we just will bring a seal pelt that they can feel. And just touching that new texture is enough to make them super interested. Mm-hmm. Um, the questions that, you know, the second graders ask are very different, of course, than the questions that the high schoolers ask. But um, we've gotten so much interest from all of the levels. Um, a lot of the high schoolers are following us on Facebook so they can keep up with our research expedition nice. updates and things like that. Are you bringing photos as well to show them uh, some of your, your experiences down in Antarctica? Yeah, so it depends on the grade level. Um, but for most of the grades, we have a PowerPoint presentation. Um, it's about 30 minutes. So, you know, for the younger levels, it's mostly videos and pictures. For the older levels, we'll put some graphs and figures and things like that. Um, so we do that for about half an hour. We'll take a bunch of questions from them, and then we generally do the measuring activity. So it's kind of a, it's a full learning process. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Um, so tell me now. You also said that you have a, a children's book. Yeah. That is, uh, it's in the works. About to be published. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit more about what what is it about? Yeah. So it's actually about a seal named Patches. It's it's about a real uh, a real wood owl seal, but. Essentially, I took um, the stuffed seal to one of the classrooms and I had a third grader come up to me and ask if I would write a children's book about the stuffed seal so that her parents could read it to her every night. And that kind of melted my heart and motivated me um, to write a book. So um, I recruited my fiance, who's also a seal biologist, to write this book with me. I said, okay, 
we don't know how to write children's books, but it's just 700 words. We just need to come up with 700 words. Um, and we decided to use real pictures instead of illustrations. So um, him and I have both been down to Antarctica several times. We kind of compiled pictures from our cameras and from our friends' cameras, the best of the best. It's about 40 pictures. And then we put words to it. Um, so it ended up being a kind of adventure story. Um, it's from the perspective of a scientist who goes down there and is trying to f find one seal in particular, um, whose name is Patches. Um, and, you know, Patches has been seen every year and uh, the researchers know if Patches has a pup that it's been a good year for the Woodell seals um, because there was enough food and so Patches could raise a healthy pup. Um, so the scientist goes down to the Antarctic and is trying to find this one seal um, and the whole story goes through kind of the adventure process of taking the helicopters and the snow machines out and looking for the seal and worrying because they can't find the seal and seeing penguins and minky whales and things like that. Um, should I ruin the end of the story? That's up to you. That's <laughs> really up to you. If you, if you know, you're going to have your moment to, have dun, the, dun, to dun. be able to tell people where they can get it. So. Yeah. Um, so they end up finding Patches, and Patches has a pup. And it's a happy story, so um, I think the third graders will appreciate that. Um, but, yeah, we're, uh, we're working with publishers now to get it kind of accepted and get the final revisions done. And that should hit stores um, if all goes according to plan by September of 2017 next year. Okay, and we're talking retail stores or are they gonna be like specialty stores that focus on uh, books like that, you know, like all the aquariums and whatnot? Yeah, so it goes it goes into a catalog. It's the University of Alaska Presses who we're working with. Okay. Um, and so they publish it um, in their catalog that they send to bookstores basically, and then bookstores can decide whether or not they wanna order certain books. Um, so hopefully there will be kind of broad interest, but we do have aquariums um, that we've worked with and bookstores that we work with as well. So we're kind of talking to those people individually to try to get our book uh, in as many stores as we can. It will be on Amazon as well. So that'll be kind of the easiest option. Okay, and, and I'm curious, I hate to press on this. I know some people don't like questions like this, but I mean, what do you plan to do with the uh, the, uh, the money that comes from the purchase of these works? I mean, is, that, yeah. are, is it going to be going to some sort of fund or are you... We've thought a lot about this, yeah. So, um, you know, in the I was actually interested in how the children's book industry works because I had no idea. Um, our book will probably sell for $16 um, and authors get about 7% royalty. Um, so you figure you get about a dollar a book, which is pretty significant. So if you can sell a thousand copies, that's a thousand dollars, which is, is definitely, um, it's definitely not nothing. So we're trying to figure out what we're gonna do with that. Um, we've talked about having kind of a scholarship fund for young Alaska kids. Um, we've talked about kind of saving it and trying to use that for our next endeavor. Just put it right back into mm -hmm. to your efforts. Yeah. yeah, you know, the outreach program, we, we did get some funding um, from a couple different uh, organizations, including the Patty Foundation, which has been really excellent in funding our, our education endeavors. Um, and that's what paid for the stuffing, for the stuffed seal and um, <laughs> some of the postcard programs that we had, and that's been great. But um, we've definitely paid some things out of pocket, so... Um, so, you know, going into reimbursing that and also kind of prepping for the next set of classroom visits that we'll do, hopefully with the book in tow, um, that'll be really great. Now, that's exciting, though, uh, to hear about that. We need, I mean, I, I don't really feel like there's, a, uh, that the market is heavily saturated with content like that. I think that there's, yeah. personally, I don't think it's ever, it ever can be enough because these are always, it's new information and it's new stories and it's new exposure. Kids aren't, they're not keeping score. They're not looking at it that way. So right. if you deliver to them in the right fashion, 
they'll become very receptive to that. And, uh, you know, that's, it's, it's that type of thing, especially when you have somebody saying, I want my parents to read me that book. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Happy heart. Happy heart. No, it's been, it's been cool. You know, it's been really similar to the scientific publication process in a lot of ways where you have to write cover letters and, you know, tell the publishers what's novel about your book and things like that. And, and so it's been kind of interesting in a way, reviewing the children's book literature for seals. And, you know, there are a couple books, but there really aren't that many about seal science. So I think it's a really novel book. Um, and it's really novel in that it used pictures, it uses pictures instead of illustrations, which I think, um, you know, children's books are generally illustrations, but Antarctica is such a special place and so few people get to go that I think having those pictures will really bring people into the world in a much more accurate way than illustrations um, would do otherwise. So yeah, we're really excited about it. Well, it seems, it seems like to me that there's there's some reciprocation going on here. So as much as you're doing for them, they're doing this for you Absolutely. as well. So it's definitely a feel-good emotion. And, and, and I think that when you see that type of energy exchange between an audience, especially a young audience, mm -hmm. um, and then uh, a person like yourself and your team that are that are doing this sort of thing, it only fuels that effort. Like, why would you ever stop doing this Absolutely. sort of thing? And then when see when people see that, it really is very inviting. And like, how can I help? Or I want to start my own. You know, and that's, and that's where the snowball, uh, you know, usually happens or should. Absolutely. Happen. I had one of my one of my best graduate student friends um, come up to me this year and say, "I want to start an outreach program. I want to go visit classrooms. How do I do that? How do I do that?" And to me, that was the moment where I was like, oh my gosh, you know, this is happening. This is, it worked and it's inspiring people. And that to me is, is really cool. So do you, what do you think uh, you'll go from here then? You've got this book, you've got your school you I know you said you want to teach. I mean, are you want to focus on a university? Do you think maybe you'd start your own uh, business, nonprofit, and then do some sort of education component in there and you know, maybe it's not a professor you're going to be, right? Maybe right. There's all kinds of teachers out there. Yeah, you know, this gets back to what we were talking about originally. You go where the money is. So I'm theoretically, you know, the, the book will be out next year. Um, it'll be about a year before I'm finished with my PhD. So I'm hoping at that point um, I can take the book around to a couple classrooms. I can do that outreach and then I can finish my PhD and sort of tie up all the loose ends. Um, and I'm hoping that a position will open up, either a postdoctoral opportunity or a professorship or something um, related to my interests that I can do to continue doing what I'm doing, research and education, which is what I absolutely love. Um, but you know, if those aren't opportunities aren't there, then I'm happy to be flexible, and um, and I think I'm working hard to prepare myself to be flexible. Um, one of the things I take most seriously as a graduate student is sort of. Um, diversifying the opportunities that I have and that's why right now I'm out here helping out with first sale research and you know getting my hands on as many opportunities as I can so hopefully that comes in handy in a couple of years <laughs> that's a wonderful approach and that's actually wonderful advice for people's that uh, they shouldn't live a life uh, of rigidness um, because yeah. it, it's you never know well it's it's like swimming upstream really like, <laughs> you really just have to you really do have to kind of go with the flow um, and you'll find out that you'll actually benefit quite a bit from it. Not only That's just true. the lack of resistance, but you're also subjecting yourself to a greater opportunity by doing that than just being so like focused. And maybe that was something from back in the day, but yeah. today it's, it, the world doesn't seem to be that way anymore because it's constantly 
evolving. Yeah, well, and, and all the opportunities are so competitive that you have to have more than one skill set, I think. Um, so, you know, whether it be research and education or research and conservation or conservation and management, you know, it's, it's kind of figuring out how to tie all those different pieces together. I think that's sort of the key. Yeah. So with everything else that you that you've been doing right now, mm-hmm. um, and how do you see the world of all these conservation efforts? And and of course, it, not everything is positive that's that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and does it seem like humans are acknowledging this, or you know, what is your personal feel on all the work that's being done to p- preserve our natural world? Um, you know, are, are we moving fast enough? Uh, do we need to move faster? What else do we need to do? You know, you can't do everything. Yeah. It's going to take, you know, and you don't have to be a scientist mm-hmm. to do your part. Yeah. You know, and this is, goes beyond recycling. <laughs> you know, I think yeah. the first thing is, is appreciation. Absolutely. And being observant. Absolutely. So, like, what, you know, what else have you seen on your path um, that could be done and that you're hoping to maybe achieve or inspire to kind of get that message out there? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think, I mean, first to answer your question, are we moving fast enough? The answer will always be no. No matter what we do, it will never be fast enough. And I think that's definitely frustrating to a lot of people and that's what leads some people to the attitude of, you know, they just give up. You know, nothing's good enough, so why try it all? Um, And I think that's sort of been really prohibiting in a lot of ways. Um, To me, what I've found through my research and my education is that there's something that makes everyone tick, um, whether it be you know inspiring a kindergartner who touches that seal pelt and then wants to become a marine biologist who eventually does a bunch of applied science and makes a difference that way, whether it's talking to someone at an aquarium and telling them how cool it is that one of these hooded nudibranchs smells like watermelons and they're going, oh my gosh, there's all these animals in the ocean that I don't understand, maybe I should think about protecting them or whether it's showing someone a picture of a sea turtle with um, a plastic ring around its neck. Um, You know, you show the kindergartner the picture of the turtle with the plastic ring around its neck, and maybe that kindergartner won't respond in the same way as someone else would. And so it's really, I think, understanding your audience, both in terms of who you're directly talking to, but who you're targeting your research and conservation efforts for. And then also, kind of getting feedback from those people and seeing how you're making a difference. So looking at visitors who are going to these big aquariums and seeing what their thoughts are both before they go to the aquarium and also after. Um, But it's really important to kind of, to assess your audience and figure out where you're going with your different efforts. So with that said, um, what advice would you um, have uh, for the younger generation or aspiring biologist? Anything helps. I think that's kind of what I keep telling myself, sometimes it feels like the research I'm doing isn't applied enough. Sometimes it feels like I'm not working hard enough or I'm not doing enough education. And I keep telling myself, you know, you can't do everything. I can't save the world by myself, but anything that I can do will make a difference. And so it's important to, to do those little pieces and those little pieces add up. And when people see you doing those little pieces, they're inspired to do them as well. So I think that would probably be my biggest piece of advice. And so, you know, we've discussed a lot here. Do you have any, you know, additions? Yeah, you know, I just, I, I want to thank you guys, first of all, for doing the work that you're doing, because I think it's incredible. Well, um, documentaries, I think, are one of the absolute best ways to get people inspired. Obviously, there's the David Attenborough sort of generation, you know, of, you know, we've all seen those videos and been absolutely amazed by the natural world. And I think that that, you know, one video can do sometimes a lot more than, 
you know, me trying to tell a million people about the research that I'm doing. So thank you guys for um, being willing to do that. But also thank you for being willing to um, collaborate and coordinate with people who are doing the research, because I think a lot of us oftentimes are so focused on what we're doing that we lose track of the bigger picture. Um, and we don't have the skill sets that you do. So I think by kind of working together, it's, it's creating a really cool opportunity to spread the word about a lot of these issues. We really appreciate you coming on our show as well and, and for everything that you do. I mean, we appreciate all, all researchers. I mean, as you know, people at Wildlands were, were actively also involved in uh, biology and research right. ourselves. So, which helps us give us a bit of understanding whenever we're communicating exactly. with you guys. And I think that's I, that's the bridge, yeah. um, essentially what makes it work. Um, so, uh, in order for people to learn more about what you're doing and to yeah. get updates on the book and everything is there a is there a website or some place that they could obtain more information yeah so most of the information um, is available on our facebook page which is facebook.com slash waddell seal biology waddell is w-e-d-d-e-l-l waddell seal biology um, and that will have updates on the book and things like that as they come out um, we are headed down to antarctica for our last trip on november 5th or somewhere around then um, so we'll start posting updates closer to them with our flight times and our field successes and our field failures and all that fun stuff. Well, thank you, Roxanne. Really appreciate it. <laughs> of course. Thanks for having me. All right. That was our interview with Roxanne Beltran, graduate student, SEAL researcher, and educator. Roxanne's passion for her work really stands out in this interview, and it's, it's always great to hear from folks with this amount of energy and excitement about the work that they're doing. Be sure to keep an eye on, on Roxanne's website that she just mentioned there at the end of the interview to see updates from her current field season and uh, the, also on the progress of her kids' book. Um, we will post uh, all of those links that she mentioned uh, on the show notes page for this episode, which you'll find at wildlensinc.org EOC96. That's W-I-L-D-L-E-N-S-I-N-C dot org EOC96. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. If you're really feeling gracious today, you can leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. This really helps new people discover the show. The Eisen Conservation Podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's interview was produced by Sean Bogle, and I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. The Humidors.